Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. I'm Joe. All right, Joe, we have the Final Four right now about to start on Saturday in basketball, but I really thought that you got a couple of the coaches involved in the Final Four. It made me think, who are the best four coaches right now who should be up for Coach of the Year in college basketball? And it led me to four names, two of which are in the Final Four, and two of which got shut out uh, in the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16. And, of course, you know, bleeding it off, you got Mark Few of Gonzaga looking to have the first perfect season since Bobby Knight's 1975-76 Hoosiers. Uh, then, of course, you got Mick Cronin, head coach of the surprising, uh, say, Cinderella 11th seed, the UCLA Bruins, uh, taking on Gonzaga. And then one of the team, the two teams, the UCLA beat. You got the one-seeded Michigan, who UCLA beat in the Elite Eight, uh, led by Coach Juwan Howard, who has long been said as the front runner for Coach of the Year this year. And then, of course, in the Sweet Sixteen, SEC Coach of the Year, and gotten a lot of uh, pub for National Coach of the Year, Nate Oates. So, Joe, looking at all four of these coaches. Who do you think deserves to be coach of the year in college basketball? Well, I think that Mick Cronin's um, success in the NCAA tournament, if you were giving the award out now, he's done more with less than any, any of these teams or coaches, in my opinion. Um, I think that you had made the point earlier when we were talking you know, with show prep that if Gonzaga goes undefeated and unblemished, that Mark Few would deserve the award. But I'm kind of leaning towards, you know, Mick Cronin as far as who I'm most impressed with for getting uh, the most out of kind of a subpar roster. Yeah, Joe, I mean, obviously, you know, just like when you when you think about the NFL, like what happens in the playoffs matters the most. What happens in March Madness is what's going to make your decision on this. And let's look at someone like Nate Oates, for instance. Uh, I mean, just an absolutely incredible job. I personally thought Alabama should have gotten a one seed. And you look at what they did. Had they made the Final Four, I think Nate Oates would have definitely been in the conversation for me because, uh, frankly, War Eagle, Alabama's never made a Final Four before in college basketball, and they still haven't. Now, I think had Nate Oates gotten them there, they would have earned it at that point. But since they went out of the Sweet 16 as a two seed, can't give it to him. Uh, Juwan Howard did a great job of coaching up until the UCLA game without Isaiah Livers. And, you know, he got them to a one seed. They played in what was allegedly the best conference in college basketball, the Big Ten, until we saw what they did in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, I thought his coaching at the end of uh, the game against UCLA was a little bit suspect. And UCLA moves on. So I think you got to knock Juwan Howard out of that conversation, even though I thought he did a great job. And it comes down to Mark Few and, and, and Nick Cronin. And I personally think, Joe, that, Nick Cronin should get it unless Mark Few wins the national championship. If Mark Few takes this great Gonzaga team, goes undefeated, is the first team in 45 years to do this, and does it at even though they're you know pretty household names, they're still technically a mid-major that doesn't have the same resources as other college basketball programs, and is not in a big conference. You got to give it to Mark Few, but if for some reason. Uh, Gonzaga goes down to, especially if they go down to UCLA, but if they go down to either Houston or Baylor in the championship game, I think you got to give it to Mick Cronin because he worked with a team that lost a couple of their best players before the season, didn't have a lot of talent, and 
uh, came from the very bottom. A lot of the team that a lot of people thought shouldn't even be in the NCAA tournament to grind it out and beat some of these really great basketball teams like Alabama and Michigan to get here. I think that Mick Cronin right now, unless Mark Few wins a national championship, is my choice for coach of the year. Yeah, and you want to talk about changing your narrative in the blink of an eye. I mean, think about, you know, two weeks ago, we probably could have even put Brad Underwood, the head coach at Illinois, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And then now suddenly, because of their surprising upset to Sister Jean and Loyola Chicago in the second round of 32, you have to, you know, take him off the list because that was a colossal disappointment with the roster he had. And then suddenly Mick Cronin, who you know, some people probably would have said was on the hot seat next year if he doesn't make the NCAA tournament, he kind of gets a gift of making the tournament with the last four teams in. And then suddenly, you know, he's in line, as I said earlier, for a lucrative extension on his contract one day. And so it's just amazing how in the blink of an eye, some of these narratives can change. I mean, two weeks ago, I never would have considered Mick Cronin, you know, in this uh, – um, in this category. No, I mean, how would you possibly think that a guy could be in the coach of the year category when he's at a great program like UCLA that's had so much success, 11 national championships, and he loses his last four games of the season? Now, I do want to put a caveat on that, Joe, that if you want to be a Pac-12 homer right now and beat your chest a little bit, why don't you talk about the last four teams that UCLA lost to? They lost to Colorado. They lost to Oregon. They lost to USC, and they lost to Oregon State, all of which made the NCAA tournament, all of which won games. Uh, I think that you you know, would definitely have to think about the Oregon State coach as someone, uh, Tinkle, as getting uh, a thought on this as well, because what he did winning the uh, Pac-12 uh, conference championship uh, in the tournament and then making that run all the way to the Elite Eight to play pretty close with Houston, also impressive. USC making the Elite Eight, uh, Colorado uh, winning their first round game pretty uh, impressively over a good Georgetown team, then going out to Florida State. Uh, really impressive run by all of these Pac-12 teams. And then, of course, Dana Altman uh, going out in the Sweet 16. But, you know, that's what uh, all the Pac-12 teams won at least one game. Uh, two of them, uh, you know, and then uh, – Three of them made the Elite Eight. Four of them made the Sweet 16. Really great run and impressive showing by the Pac-12 that makes those last four losses by UCLA not look near as bad. Well, a couple of things, like to your points, that's fascinating about it for me. First, I read that this is the first Final Four ever where you don't have a participant east of the Mississippi River. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, you don't have anybody from the Big Ten after they had nine teams in the NCAA tournament. Nobody from the SEC, nobody from the Big East like Villanova, uh, nobody from the uh, the other conference, the ACC. Yeah, none. And so, yeah, so that that's crazy in itself. And then you talk about the success of some of these conferences that a lot of times get the raw end of the deal when it comes to the college football playoff committee like the AAC. The Pac-12 is always left out and usually justifiably, but still they're frustrated. And so it's kind of interesting that these conferences are getting a chance to make it to the Final Four in men's college basketball. And then the last thing I would say on this topic, I'm going to be interested going forward to see if the impact of this year's tournament 
has any impact on the evaluation of some of these other conferences going forward. And here's what I mean by that. I feel like sometimes we always assume because a conference like the Big Ten this year has three or four teams that all have a lot of wins, they rack up like in Iowa, like in Illinois, like in Ohio State, like in Michigan. We're always quick to assume that that means that that is definitely um, the recipe for a strong conference. Whereas in basketball, we don't always look at a conference like the Pac-12 where maybe they don't have as many wins, but everybody kind of beat each other up. Mm -hmm. So I will be interested to see if some of the evaluation data might be a little bit different. Probably not, but I think it's a conversation. I think it should be, Joe. I mean, you look at what the Pac-12 did to the Big Ten. I mean, Oregon destroyed Iowa, and that was just a beatdown. And, like, Iowa was supposed to be a team that a lot of team people had in their Final Four. Of course, we talk about the way that Sister Jeans Bunch, the Ramblers, just beat up on on Illinois. And, I mean, what an utter disappointment by the Big Ten. Ohio State gets, gets beat by Oral Roberts. And Michigan was the only one they had. And then they ended up going down to an 11th seed after everything they did. And so I think that they do need to look at that. And the Pac-12 definitely showed there's some really good basketball out there. And, and I really think that next year that there should the AAC should not be a one-bid league. I mean, Houston has shown that they are one of the more athletic teams in college basketball. They out-physical you. And they had some people beat them in their conference and run them pretty close. I think Memphis is a team that should have made the NCAA tournament. And I definitely think that in the future they're going to need to rethink taking a conference like the Big Ten and putting nine teams in. That's absolutely ridiculous. No, it definitely is. They used to do it with the old Big East. They'd sometimes let nine or ten teams in. Yeah, it's just crazy to me how they'll decide sometimes that those conferences, like you could have a team in the Big Ten this year go like 16 and 15, and they would try to you know put them in as like an eight seed. Like that's just kind of the year that it was. But to me, like, the um, results of the tournament just don't correspond with that. No, they don't. And, and Joe, uh, you know, I think it was something we, we saw coming that was going to be a lot of upsets this year. But this had more upsets in it than any NCAA tournament ever, which is something that I think was great for us getting to see basketball again. But also probably tells you there was something wrong with the way the seating was this year. Yes, yes, I think that's a good point. All right, Joe. Well, speaking of uh, something wrong with the seeding, I guess UCLA probably shouldn't have been an 11 seed, right? They get to take on Gonzaga, which has a chance to be uh, the greatest, if not one of the greatest college basketball teams ever for all the reasons we talked about earlier with, you know, the star power from Jalen Suggs to Kisbert to Drew Timmy uh, to Ayayi and just a loaded team, and then, of course, uh, UCLA with their upstart, having gone through one of the roughest roads, having to beat Michigan State, BYU, Alabama as a two-seed, Michigan as a one-seed, now gets to take on the prize possession, the best team in college basketball. How do you see this game going? Well, it kind of depends on who comes out and sets the tempo. Gonzaga wants to run up and down the court, play high-octane offense, you know, spread the floor, play with their good chemistry, their guard plays, you know, superb. Timmy's playing so well, posting up inside in the paint. Like I saw where against uh, Creighton, I think Gonzaga had 50 points in the paint. And UCLA does not have as much size as some teams out there. Like they don't, they don't even have as much size as USC. Mm-hmm. So you would think conventional 
wisdom would tell you that Gonzaga could dominate inside. But it all goes back to tempo. Gonzaga wants to run and make this a game where they score like 80 or 90 points. On the flip side, conversely, UCLA wants to slow this game down. They want to limit the possessions, play a defensive, grinded-out game, much similar to Tony Bennett in Virginia through the years. And that's exactly what they did against Michigan, beating them 51-49. to 49. So the tempo will be key. Another thing I'll be paying attention to is free-throw shooting. Because Gonzaga has some pretty good free-throw shooters, don't get me wrong. But they haven't really at all this year been in a close game down you know, to the wire where they've been expected to knock down a free-throw in crunch time. And that could be significant on the final four stage. So something to pay attention to. But all that being said, I still think you have to favor Gonzaga. If it was not UCLA with the name on the jersey and just kind of the surprise run that they've had so far, like if I was just looking at this matchup strictly from one team's players against the others, it's Gonzaga and a route. But I still think that, you know, all the psychological factors out of the way, Gonzaga should win this game. They're the better team. They've been on fire. And they should move on to the national championship game. Yeah, Joe, uh, I think that when you look at it from a talent perspective, it's not even close. The question is just the toughness that UCLA has, what they've had to do to get here. Is that going to make them have the confidence to be able to pull off this upset? But the biggest problem that I see, Joe, is that Gonzaga has it on every level. I mean, they can beat you in a grinded-out game because their defense is that good. Of course, they want to run across the floor and have it be fast-paced, and if it gets into that kind of game, then UCLA doesn't have a chance. And, you know, the, the biggest hope that UCLA has is that Gonzaga has a rough shooting night. Well, if they have a rough shooting night, then they just get it into Timmy, and he can take over the paint. Um, I'll tell you who the one player I think for UCLA that can make a huge difference in this game is, and it's not Johnny Juzang, it's not Tiger Campbell. I think Riley on the inside can make a big difference. If you looked at the Alabama game, he was the reason they won that game. He dominated the paint against Alabama and got a lot of points there at the very end and really boxed out rebounding. And so I think if Kevin Riley can go in there and have a, a big-time game, then maybe Gonzaga can be neutralized a little bit with their inside um, advantage they have. But I think the only hope that UCLA yeah, has yeah, – is keeping this game under 60. I, I think that they, they're not going to beat Gonzaga if Gonzaga puts up more than 60 points. Yes, no, I completely agree with that. And I would just add that I would tell our listeners, viewers, to pay attention to what the score is um, past the 10-minute mark of the first half. Uh, Mick Cronin, which is probably going to tell his players, you may have to kind of weather the storm early with Gonzaga survive that first 10 minutes and if we're you know within 10 points we have a chance whereas if Gonzaga you know could get out just a hot hot start where they're knocking down the threes with Kispert and Nimhart and Ayayi that's when they create that separation that might be insurmountable but if you get to like the 10 minute mark of the first half get close to halftime and Gonzaga all of a sudden is running up and down the court but missing three-point shots and maybe getting uh, trigger heavy or tr trigger happy in settling for ill-advised three-point shots, that can allow um, UCLA to hang around a lot longer than they should.
And Joe, one thing that I think should be scary for UCLA is that Kispert had probably his worst game in the second half of the year against uh, UC against USC. And that was one of the, the things that like frightened me about this Gonzaga team is they could have the best shooter in the country in Kisbert have one of his worst games and still beat UCLA by almost 20 points. And so I think that that might be a scary thing for UCLA that Kisbert had that bad game. He's probably going to want to come back and have a good game right now. So I think that it's going to be tougher for them to stop him. And I think another huge matchup you have in this game that fascinates me is the point guard battle between Jalen Suggs and Tyre Campbell. Campbell's had a, a really interesting tournament because he hasn't scored a lot of points. He hasn't done things like very, you know, very prettily or with a huge flow, but he gets it done and he's tough. I mean, he goes in there and he gets those fouls. And on the defensive side of the ball, he takes some good charges and gets some steals. And Campbell could be a guy that can make a big difference in this game. Yeah, he could really be a, a big factor. Also be interested to see if you see um, Nick Cronin run some boxing one sets on defense with Jalen Suggs and also some full court press to try to disrupt the uh, Gonzaga pace as well. Well, Joe, ultimately, here's the way I feel about this game. UCLA has had a magical run. They played some really good basketball, uh, but dreams come to an end. And this Gonzaga team is just so loaded that I don't want to say that there's no chance that UCLA can win this game because I feel like they've heard that every game this entire NCAA tournament and they keep proving people wrong. I'm not going to say 100% they can't win this game, but I'm saying 99% they can't win this game. And I think Gonzaga beats them and covers the spread on it. And for my final four pick of the week, I say take Gonzaga to cover the spread. And I think they're going to win this game. I think UCLA is going to chalk them down a little bit on defense, but not enough. I like Gonzaga in this game, 75-61. Okay. I'll say Gonzaga wins 70-55. to 55. Um, And what what is the spread on the game right now? I want to say it's 13 uh, right now, 13 and a half. So I like Gonzaga just a notch over it. Which I think this is one of the biggest spreads that you've ever had for a Final Four game at 13 and a half. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And, and I would just finally say, kind of on my prediction, I feel like the only way UCLA wins is if we look back and something fluky happened or something crazy. Like, I just don't think straight up there's any way UCLA can win. No, and I mean, if you look at, you know, I'm not taking anything away from what UCLA has done, but the last two wins over teams that are vastly superior to them is two-seed two Bama and one-seed Michigan. Uh, Alabama shot, what, 40% from the free-throw line, 11 of 25, and Michigan shot like 54% and missed a bunch of free throws. So they had those happen, and of course, uh, Michigan missing all those shots at the end of the game when they had a chance to win. But sometimes those are the kind of breaks you need. But they're going to need uh, Gonzaga missing a lot of shots they're not supposed to, uh, bad free throws, maybe some foul trouble on someone like a, a Timmy or a Kisbert. And I think they're going to need all those things together in order to have a chance to keep this game competitive, not alone, let alone win. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. Uh, Joe, moving on to the other game, which uh, I think based on what you've heard the analysis we have, we think it's going to be much more interesting than this one. I think Baylor and Houston is actually going to be a really good game. Um, I know Baylor, uh, I know Houston, uh, we talked about earlier, has had the easiest road of any team to ever make the Final Four. They're playing all these dregs that are that are 10-plus seeds to get here. 
But they're a really good team, and they play a style of basketball, which I think will really frustrate Baylor. Uh, Houston, they don't make a lot of shots, but their defense is so tough, and they rebound so well. And, Joe, I think the biggest stat coming into this game is that Houston is the number two offensive rebounding team in America, and and Baylor is the number 263-ranked defensive rebounding team. So there is a huge advantage for Houston when it comes to rebounding. Oh, absolutely. And these teams remind me of each other with them both being kind of perimeter-oriented, guard-oriented. They don't have as much size. But you're right, for their size, Houston is an outstanding rebounding team. Their guards rebound the basketball well. You look at Giroux, you look at Sasser, you look at Quentin Grimes. And Quentin Grimes, to me right now, has been the most important player for the Houston program over the last couple of years because he was a former five-star recruit who originally signed with Bill Self in Kansas. He transfers to Houston to join Coach Sampson, and that's just kind of allowed this team to go to the next level, having that five-star talent uh, surrounded with his other teammates. And I was really impressed the other night against Oregon State, watching Houston offensively navigate and maneuver through the uh, full-court press defense that Oregon State was trying to run in the last couple of minutes of that game in desperation mode. And I think that Baylor's a team that likes to be aggressive on defense, and so I saw Houston be unfazed by that, and I think that that bodes well to prepare them to give Baylor a really good game. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, though, I mean, Baylor, to me, is the better team. They have a little bit more depth. You look at Davion Mitchell, you look at Jared Butler – you look at Flagler, um, you look at Teague. I mean, they have four guards that can beat you on any given night. Um, they kind of have depth to me similar to Gonzaga. And so, but at the end of the day, because these teams are so similar, defensive-minded, perimeter-oriented, I do feel like it's a game that's going to come down to crunch time. Yeah, Joe, I think Baylor's got a little bit more depth, especially when you come to the guards. Uh, you know, it's tough to be able to stop Mitchell, Butler, uh, and Flagler all at the same time. Uh, but I definitely think this one is the much more compelling of the matchups to me because I think Samson is such a good coach. And like I said, I think the style that Houston runs, they like to slow it down too. And their ability to rebound and out-physical a team in, in Baylor that frankly is more of a finesse team makes this a much more compelling matchup. And, you know, in terms of the coaching uh, matchup, Scott Drew is a great coach. So is Samson. And I really think this one's going to come down to the wire. And, Joe, I have just the slightest of edges to Baylor in this. I think that, you know, someone like Mitchell with their defensive ability might make a play at the end of this game to get Baylor over. But, Joe, if Baylor wins this game by one to two points, I wouldn't be surprised. I love this Houston team. And I said it uh, after that first, that second win they had over Rutgers, the way they had to grind that one out, come back, Jerome playing through a hit pointer. Uh, they showed me a lot that night, and I knew they could make a deep run. And uh, I like Baylor just a little bit, but if Houston wins this game, count me as not surprised at all. You know, I would concur with that analysis. And I think that it's going to come right down to the wire. I would go Baylor wins 62-60. to 60 and a nail-biter, a barn burner of a game. I think that Mitchell, to your point, makes a profound difference on defense. And that's why I think if Baylor does survive Houston, that they could really challenge Gonzaga because Mitchell's such a really good defender. 
I think he would kind of uh, cause some trouble for Gonzaga, or at least more than other teams has have uh, on the perimeter. Yeah, Joe, I'm going to take uh, Baylor in this one, 59-57. to 57. It's going to be a little bit of a lower-scoring game because that's the way that Houston plays, and I think that they're going to have the ball for a long time. I think there's going to be times where Houston gets four or five shots off because they out-rebound Baylor, but unfortunately they just don't shoot the ball well enough, I think, for them to get over this Baylor team that has so many ways they can hit you, and you also is a very talented defensive team. Um but, yeah, I'm also on the Baylor-Gonzaga National Championship track there. And uh, what we'll do is when, you know, we have the Final Four get, uh, you know, concludes, have the winner, we'll do a little special podcast where we predict who wins the National Championship, do a little free one for everyone. Um, and when we come back, we're going to have a special locker room talk that's got a little bit of a March Madness theme. We're going to talk about some commercials. You've been seeing – Charles Barkley hanging out with Sam Jackson and uh, Jim Nance and Spike Lee. And then you also see Lily giving all of her different uh, March Madness halftime uncomplications. And, of course, uh, other just great commercials throughout. And Joe and I are going to create our own commercials for Lily and Charles Barkley and crew. And we'll do that when we come back on Locker Room Talk. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.